The Old Testament lesson is taken from Jonah, the first 17 verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Thanks. So why study the book of Jonah during Lent, I hear you ask? Well, Lent is a time to reflect on what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lent is also an opportune time to repent of our misdeeds and of our misgivings and to increase our spiritual awareness. It is interesting that on Yom Kippur, the most solemn day of the Jewish calendar, our Jewish brothers and sisters read in their synagogues a story of a big fish. As worshippers fast, as worshippers confess their sins and reflect on the words of Moses and Isaiah, they listen once again to the account of a catch and release that is so amazing that no one would believe it unless it was written in the Bible. 
of all the readings that could have been chosen for the holiest, the highest holiest day in the Jewish year, someone started the tradition of reading the book of Jonah. So why is the big question, why did they do that? Why did the Jewish people read about a reluctant prophet who ran from God, who was caught by a big fish and then miraculously released to complete a dangerous mission in what is now the nation of Iraq? One teacher of Israel said the story of Jonah is more about repentance than it is about the fish. Jonah is evidence that no one can escape the presence of God, even while trying to run from the Almighty. Therefore, Jonah is read on Yom Kippur with the hope that the listeners would learn from Jonah's mistakes. One rabbi says God cares for everyone. Jonah cares only for himself. But in the end, God wins. So over the next four weeks of Lent, we will explore the major theme of the book of Jonah, focusing on the relationship between shame, spirituality, and personal transformation. Because when we get these areas right before God, when we are willing to bring these areas before God, we can and we will be the salt of the earth. We will be the light of the lamp. We will be that city on a hill, both as a church and as individuals. In the passage I just referenced, that is from Matthew chapter 5, which is commonly known as the Beatitudes, Jesus is identifying our need to embrace the sacred. While like Jonah, all want to be, we want to be ourselves, and like Jonah, often run from our divine calling and our divine destiny due to shame and perceived incompleteness, the crucial fact that, that the book of Jonah draws out is that in God, there is no one born without a purpose to fulfill. There is no one born without a destiny to fulfill. But there is such a thing called the Jonah complex. So what is that, I hear you ask? A man by the name of Abraham Maslow coined the phrase in his book, Motivation, and personality in 1953. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because this, this man um, in this book, he, he made popular the hierarchy of needs, the hierarchy of needs theory. Some of you would have uh, studied that in grade 9 or grade 10, whether it be in social studies or whether it was in biology, and that was the, you know, the, 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 uh, the hierarchy of needs. You know, the first thing is food. The human body needs food, and then there's shelter, and then there's, uh, 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 then there's nurturing, and there's all these things that is needed. So in that book, there's a chapter called the Jonah Complex, and it's a relatively unknown chapter in this book. So what is it? The Jonah Complex is an evasion of growth and fulfilling one's best talents, one's best uh, abilities. It's the fear of one's greatness. It is one of the biggest reasons why people don't bother to find out and actively pursue their purpose in life. The thought of filling our destiny brings up fear, brings up shame and doubt and challenge, which are easy to ignore. They're easily ignored. 
And, easy to, and it's much easier to ignore that than to embrace the sacredness of our own destiny. So this, it is the issue of our greatness that's scary when compared to our humble presence and our circumstances. So Jesus tells us a parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And he basically says, with great destiny comes great responsibility. It is our responsibility. It is your responsibility and it is my responsibility to know and to recognize our own talents. It is our responsibility. It's yours and it's mine to know and recognize our own greatness and our own potential. And finally, Jesus tells us about the responsibility of service to others with the very same talents. So the Jonah complex is typified in Jesus' account of that last servant who refuses to invest his talent because of fear, because of shame, and because of doubt. Let's pick it up in verse 25. It says, So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew what, where, that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has been given more, um, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what we're going to see as we walk through the book of Jonah is that God calls us to be on mission with him. But the prerequisite of this mission is first experiencing the grace and the mercy of the gospel for ourselves. In other words, we can't extend the grace and the mercy of the gospel to others unless we first experience God's grace and mercy in our own lives. Secondly, on the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is generally held around late September, early October, the Jewish people read the whole book of Jonah and then the last three verses of Micah. They use this day as an absolute day of full confession before God. And after the book of Jonah is read, after it's read out aloud and everyone listens to it, they respond as a congregation with one voice, We are Jonah fully identifying themselves with the wayward prophet. So as we walk through this book, I want to pull out themes, I want to pull out observations in all of the ways in which you and I are Jonah. So first observation, verse 1, the word of the Lord came. This phrase is common throughout prophetic literature. In, it's it, it used over 100 times throughout the prophets, the word of the Lord also comes to us, both, but, but it comes to us through the Bible. Now, I have had so many people over the years come to me and say, Pastor, I wish God would just speak to me audibly and make it abundantly clear what he wants me to do in this situation or in that situation during this time. 
Now, this is not God's primary way of communicating with us. His primary way of communicating uh, to us is through the Bible. 66 books written by 40-plus different authors who were prophets, priests, kings, fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, written over a period of 1,800 years on three different continents in three different languages, all with a singular theme of Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's direct communication to us. And the promise is that if we are filled with the Spirit of God, it will come alive to us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. If we are Christian and we are reading our Bible, it will be the rhema of God. That's the Greek word for as if God spoke himself. Living and active, the rhema of God, as if God spoke himself. Like Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to us through the Bible because our God is a communicating God. Verse 2 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So it is important for us to understand where Nineveh is. Nineveh was a major and primary metropolis that was a part of the Assyrian Empire. The city of Nineveh had great influence. And the scripture refers to Nineveh as the great city, that great city. Nineveh was a walled city with walls that were over 100 feet tall and 50 feet wide, which only increased their pride and their sense of invincibility. The Assyrians were godless pagans who practiced witchcraft, idolatry and sexual immorality. They were destroyers of cities. They were destroyers of nations. Their whole goal was to make their name great. And this is who God calls Jonah to. The most influential, pagan, godless of all cities that ever existed. And to top it all off, they were the sworn enemies of the Jewish people. Our second observation. Like Jonah, we too are called to a great city. Akron is a great city. Akron was one of the fastest growing cities in the United States of America. The second fastest growing city in the United States of America at the time was Barberton. Currently, there are just shy of 200,000 people living in Summit County. 78% of the population is 18 years old and older. Only 14% of the population is 65 years and over. That means that the average age of someone living in Summit County is 37 years old. 87% of people in this city are high school graduates or higher. That equals or surpasses the national average. So as a city, we are young and we are educated. And so as a people of God, here at Holy Spirit Anglican Church, we are called to a great city. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 said, Then Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, take the gospel, begin at home, and spread out from there. In, Jer in Jeremiah, God tells the Israelites after their exile to Babylon, don't become a holy huddle. Don't become the deadly dozen. Don't become the frozen chosen. He tells them to become part of the city. Jeremiah 29, 5-6 says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give, them, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. God is telling them to be influential and to seek the good of the city. Because the gospel always finds its indigenous home in the midst of humanity, in the midst of human community. So let's pick up verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and hid, uh, sorry, and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So let's look at our map again. Tarshish is in southern Spain, which was the end of the known world at that time of history. This is the farthest Jonah could have run. Nineveh is around 500 miles to the east, and Tarshish is way out west. So if I'm Jonah in Akron today, and God calls me to do this, what would be the farthest place on planet Earth that I could run to? Now, there's a website called Dig a Hole. So it basically digs a hole from where you are and goes right through planet Earth and pops you out. There you go. West of Perth, Australia. That's where you would pop out. <laughs> if you were running from God, you would pop out west in the Indian Ocean, in the middle of the sorry southern Indian Ocean. So, seriously, Jonah goes down to Joppa and books the farthest sea voyage known to mankind. The question that needs to be asked is why did Jonah run? A lot of commentators on this passage say he was scared. But we learn that part of his reason for fleeing is found in chapter 4. Verse 2 to 3, let's skip ahead and have a look. He said, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a generous and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is incredibly angry and would prefer that the Assyrians go to hell. Jonah hates the Assyrians and he, hate, and, he, and he is running fast and far. 
Jonah is willing to be an object of God's mercy, but not an agent of God's mercy. Jonah is grateful to be numbered among God's people. He's glad to be called a prophet of God, to, to, to proclaim God's truths and commands for, to his people. But don't ask me to be an agent of grace to the people that I hate. Don't ask me to do that, God. So here's our third observation. Just like Jonah, we also run. Who's the bad guy in this story so far? It's Jonah, isn't it? He's a professional prophet, the bloke who is supposed to have all his stuff together because he's fleeing. It shows us that his allegiance to God is conditional. I will do anything for you, Lord, if you don't send me to Assyria. And we do the exact same thing. I will do anything for you, Lord, if you bless me and take care of me. I will do anything for you, Lord, if I don't lose my job. I will do anything for you, Lord, if my kids grow up in the knowledge of you. I will do anything for you, Lord, if you keep me materially secure. I will do anything for you, Lord, if you don't disrupt the idea that I'm in control of my life. When we have a relationship with God like that, we are telling God that we can't have the one thing that he wants. And that is a relationship with us without the ifs. Without the ifs. God is calling you and he's calling me to a love for him without ifs. You can take that statement, I will do anything for you, Lord, if... And whatever is on the other side of that if, that is your real God. Whatever that might be, power, control, comfort, prestige, that is your real God. What God does to Jonah, he does to us. He brings storms into our life to bring what is on the other side of that if to the surface so we can stare it in the face. Not because he's a mean and capricious God, but it's so that we can choose. But what does Jonah do? He tries to manage it, doesn't he? And we do exactly the same thing. Jonah managed it by running, running to a boat, sleeping in that boat, hoping that when he woke up that he would be on the shores of southern Spain sipping margaritas and learning how to do the tango. I will do anything if. What falls on the other side of that if for you? Ask yourself that question. What falls on the other side of that if for you? Jonah managed it by running. And so we do as well. But we do it in different ways. We manage it in different ways. C.S. Lewis talks about this and he said, the two primary ways we run are through time and through comparing. The first is by managing our sins through time, hoping to cleanse ourselves and, and purify our conscience on our own terms. This is a form of self-justification. The second way is by comparing ourselves to others or to others around us and concluding that our sins are not as bad as theirs. We surround ourselves with other people to make 
this comparison. In both of these examples, we think that our sin is somehow cancelled. That through self-justification, we are somehow absolved by avoiding, by removing, by cancelling our sin through time or comparison. The problem is that there is only one person that can get rid of our sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. So what is on the other side of that if for you this morning? Our fourth observation, just like just like Jonah's sin, our sin always affects others, other people. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Then, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such, an, 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 and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, I have met a lot of people over the years in ministry and I have heard this same phrase one way or another. I'm not hurting anyone if they don't know. Well, this seems logically accurate. It is absolutely false. You are hurting them because they don't know. There is one thing that will get in the way of your relationship with God and your relationship with other people, and that is secret and hidden sin. Because you don't let people into your life, because, if you don't, because when you don't let people into your life, because you're a closed book to both God and people, you're saying, no, 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 God, no. This area of my life is not for you. So how does that play out for us? That people around us don't really know who we are. Sin affects other people around us, whether we ask for, for that or, or we don't ask for that, whether it's hidden or whether it's in the light of day. Now, our text tells us that Jonah went down to the belly of the ship and went fast asleep. So let's just pick that up. It says, then the captain went to him and said, how are you sleeping? Or How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out uh, who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and it fell on Jonah. So the heathen captain is calling Jonah out. The storm is calling Jonah out. The pagan version of Yahtzee, the sailors are playing, is calling Jonah out. So let's put it into today, today's context with air travel. Imagine being on a plane and the captain's voice comes over the PA. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing a storm that I have never seen the likes of before. So we're playing Yahtzee up here in the cockpit and we're going to roll a seat number and figure out who is to blame. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, it looks like seat 21B. John Jefferson, will you please come to the cockpit? We want to have a conversation with you. <laughs> if you weren't asleep, brother, I wouldn't have called out your name. <laughs> that brings us to observation number five. Like Jonah, God will uncover our sin. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden 
from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and lay bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. It's easy for us to hide behind our clothes, our cars, our houses, our resumes, our friends, our family, our attitudes. But here, the scripture says, no, all is naked and exposed before God. It doesn't mean that God, it, this doesn't mean that God is mean and a capricious God. He's not. He's a loving and a gracious God because he knows that sin leads to death and destruction. Sin steals from you your purpose. Sin steals from you your destiny. And when left hidden in the dark, that's where sin grows. That's where sin festers. That's where sin multiplies. It's only through his grace that he comes to us and exposes our sin. 1 Timothy 5.24 says, The sins of some men are obvious, reaching to the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that one way or another, we are not going to be able to get rid of our sin on our own terms. But it is the nature of the human heart to do that by running and by managing it, what the Holy Spirit is telling us in Jonah is that God will uncover our sin at one point or another. So there is no sense in running. Verses 8 to 9 says, So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. So is Jonah's problem a theological problem? Thank you. His, his theology is spot on. He's a prophet. So let's use that thought to launch us into observation number six. Like Jonah, we know a lot about God, but we don't apply it. As is evidence through our words, as is evidence through our actions, we know stuff in our heads, but it's disconnected from our hearts. We, we see this in the question that the sailors are asking Jonah. If you believe in Yahweh, if you believe Yahweh is Lord, he's Lord of all, he's Lord of the land, he's Lord of the sea, then why are you here? Why are you running? Because Jonah doesn't really believe that God is a good God. Jonah is, has accurate theology, but he does not apply it. We also have a church full of accurate theology. This world is going to hell in a handbag. But we have accurate theology, right? We do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. We can and do fall under the deceit and the vain assumption that just because we have knowledge, just because we know a lot, we have it all together. That is, that, that we have this accurate theology. James 1.22 says, But don't list, just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. Let's go back to our text and pick it up again. Verses 10. This terrified them and they ask, asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. 
The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that this is my fault and this great storm has, that this great storm has come upon you. So the big question that every commentator asks, and, and that is the question that we'll, we'll, we will attempt to answer in this series, is Jonah repentant? Many say no. He's still running, even in his attempt to suicide. There are many more who say yes, Jonah is repentant, and his looming death is uh, a selfless, heroic act. In both of these streams, life's not so cut and dry and life's not so simple. My thoughts are that life is somewhere in the middle. Jonah is moving back to God, albeit imperfectly. He has come clean with the pagan sailors uh, by saying he owns his actions and delivering up a solution. But on the other hand, he feels guilty that the pagan crew actually now looks better than him. He's conscious stricken that he has got them into all this trouble, but he still deeply hates the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh. Who, and we know that because we just did a little check in chapter 4 to figure that out. So at best, Jonah is now conflicted. So what we see here is that repentance isn't just flipping a switch. Repentance is all about the acknowledgement and the confession of sin. But it does not end there. So let's look at observation number seven. Like Jonah, our repentance begins with confession, but it does not end there. When we repent, there is always two sins to repent of. First, the blatant sin. The word that was spoken, the deed that was done, or the inappropriate thought that needed to be confessed. Secondly, there's the motivation, that inner idol, the thing that is on the other side of the if. Jonah repents of the first and the obvious. He owns the fact that he's running from God, but he hasn't got to full repentance. He hasn't got to that idol underneath. And so we are called to those two levels of repentance this morning. God calls us to a full repentance, not just the blatant, but the motivation as well, the idol that's underneath. For example, if we speak out of turn, the root of that could be an idol of control. If we turn to any form of substance abuse, we probably are seeking to remove ourselves from a situation that causes us discomfort. There's always two levels of repentance, beloved, always two. Our action needs to be birthed out of a love for God. In other words, love for God without the ifs, without the ifs. It's about identifying what is on the other side of the if and giving it to Jesus Today and every day. Just like Jonah, we need to jump into the deep. Jonah did know what was going to happen to him. He assumed he was going to die. He came to the end of himself and he owned 
the ugliness of his sin. So right here, we see a picture of repentance, confession and ownership. Verse 13, it says, Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew uh, even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die. Take this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Can, can you see the irony in these three verses? Who was Jonah sent to? He was sent to proclaim the good news to pagan people so that they would turn from their false gods and their false worship to worship the true God, Yahweh, the Lord of Lords. So here, at what seems to be the, con the conclusion of Jonah's run, as he is at the end of himself, what has happened? These pagan sailors turn to the one true God. What that tells us is God will carry out his purpose through us. The question for us is, do we go the long way or do we go the short way? Do we go the long way through disobedience or do we go the short way through obedience? The very work that Jonah is fleeing from is accomplished in spite of Jonah's will. This is our final and eighth observation, that like Jonah, God pursues us for his purposes and for our good. God pursues us for his purposes and for our good. This shows us that we don't have to be fixed. We don't have to be perfect to be part of the mission that God is calling us to in this great city of Akron. We don't need to have it all together to see God use us. We just need to be available. Available. These final verses are beautiful, a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty amidst rebellion. Mark 4, 35 to 41 says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him, uh, they took him along just as he was in, a, in the boat. There was, also, um, there was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. Then the, then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the, wave, the wind and the waves obey him. So do you see the correlation between the two stories? Stormy seas, a bloke asleep in the boat, the crew is afraid. In this historic story, Jesus shows us that he is the greater and truer Jonah. 
Jonah was asleep in the bottom of the boat because he was running from God. Jesus was asleep on a cushion at the stern of the boat because he had fully accepted the will of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jesus Christ is the word of the Lord. He is the word of God. That Jonah was sent to Nineveh to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Jesus was sent to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the whole world. Jonah ran from obeying God's will. Jesus fully obeyed the will of the Father. Jonah is thrown overboard from a boat into the raging sea for his own sin. Jesus is thrown overboard into the sea of God's wrath as a, sin, as a sinless sacrifice for us. We are Jonah. Like Jonah, we receive the word of God, but we do not heed it. Like Jonah, we are called to a great city, but we don't care. Like Jonah, we adore being objects of God's mercy, but shudder from being agents of God's mercy. Like Jonah, we run from God and try to manage our sin. Like Jonah, our deep sin, our sin deeply affects others. Like Jonah, we try and hide our sin, but God will uncover it. Like Jonah, we are very well versed in who God is and what he has called us to do, but we don't do it because we are rebellious. Like Jonah, we will pursue his purpose for our good. We will pursue God's purposes for our good, but we will call, but he will call us. Sorry, like Jonah, God will pursue his purposes for our good, but he will call us to repentance and ask us to own our sins. So the question that is before us this morning is what is on the other side of that if? As God's people at Holy Spirit Anglican Church, we are called to a great and influential city. We live in a mission field. 78% of the population is 18 years and over. This is a strategic and key opportunity for us all to be ambassadors of Christ. Jesus is calling each one of us to be salt and light to this city. Not when we get all of our stuff together or when we get finally get into the game. But even today, even today, to participate in the mission as we are now. Even as we are dealing with what is on the other side of that if. It's all about wanting your life to count for something. On gravestones, life is defined by the date you were born and the date when you die. And the sum total of all of our living and breathing is defined by those two dates and by the hyphen. Keep going, Ryan. You're nearly there. Just plough through that. There you go. That's what we want. So when we were born and when we die, and our, the sum total of our life is determined by the hyphen in the middle. Birth, childhood, family, school, career, accomplishments, grandchildren, hyphen. Our life is a vapour. If you are hiding sin today, I beg you to come clean. 
Come clean and experience the grace of God. Give God what is on the other side of that if. You've got a choice this morning. You can keep running or you can come to him and I pray that you would come back to him. So, as the keyboard plays softly, let us pray together. Father, we ask that your spirit would draw us back this morning. Now today, some of you would recognise the fact that you've been running. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, some of you would recognise the fact that you've been running. Others of you have been drifting. But you recognise it's time to come back. It's time for me to repent. And our prayer today would be, God, renew that joy, renew that joy of my salvation. God, accept me back. Forgive me of my disobedience. I'm coming back to you. And so if that's you this morning, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if that's you, would you just lift your hand right now? Just lift it right up. I see those hands. Honest hearts. Honest hearts. Honest hearts. For those Jonas who lifted their hands, for those honest-hearted people, what I want you to do is this. Make these next few minutes a holy moment. I'm not going to give you the words to say, but I want you to pray. I want you to pray sincerely. I want you to, I want you to cry out if you have to. Do it in your seat. If you want to come to the front, I'll be, I would love to pray with you. But whatever you do, make, it, make the effort to come back to him in your own words. Tell him that you're coming back, that you're coming back full-blown, that you're coming back full-on. And you're going to pray about that. Make this a holy moment this morning. So let's make this a holy moment. If you want me to pray with you, you want me to help you with that, come out the front now. Just stand up from your seat. Come out the front. Other than that, you pray in your seat. If you want to deal with God, or you want to pray in your seat, you do that. You come back. You make that a Jonah moment. But if you want help, you want to come out the front, I would love to pray with you. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for your mercy and thank you for your forgiveness. And God, on behalf of our whole church, God, forgive us for not taking you seriously. God, forgive us for the times that we as a church hear your word, but don't act on it. We ask for your forgiveness in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.